I really think that the next three weeks are going to be life-changing for you, if you allow them to change your life. And even more, I think it's going to be life-changing, if you will, for our church. I think that the next three weeks of sermons are just going to have like this profound impact. And I'm excited about it. And uh, we won't make you cry like we did last week. I wouldn't do that to you two weeks in a row. But I think that if you will pay attention to what Jesus is saying today and next week and the week after that, then what's going to happen is your prayer life is going to be changed. And out of that, I think everything is going to be changed. Over the next three weeks, I'm going to be talking about three passages of Scripture on prayer, as you could have guessed, but they're going to be passages that, that for me anyway, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe you're beyond me, but for me anyway, they're kind of forgotten, and these teachings on prayer just aren't talked about a lot. And, and when they are talked about, and I'll say this uh, pretty clearly this morning, it's almost as if people need to find a way because of their theological background or the box that they put themselves or whatever it might be. They need to find a way to rationalize the words of Jesus. Well, let me tell you what Jesus is really thinking in this passage of Scripture because that doesn't fit with what I think. So this morning we're going we're gonna to see a passage of Scripture, but just picture the scene before we get to it. Jesus has entered into Jerusalem with thousands upon thousands of people crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's the, the story that we celebrate when we celebrate what we call Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. And so Jesus has come into Jerusalem and it's this crazy environment with people there that hate him. And really want him to be arrested and maybe killed. And then there's people there that are like, who is this guy? It seems like a lot of people really like him. And then there's his followers and his closest disciples who love him and think that he is the Messiah. And so it's this just giant, crazy event. And then it tells us at the end of the triumphal entry that Jesus goes into the temple... He looks around and then he walks out of the city back to another city called Bethany where he's staying the night. And it seems, if you're following along, that Jesus doesn't take any time to eat in all of that kind of pandemonium. And so we read Mark 11, 12, the next day as they were leaving Bethany, the place that Jesus was staying. Jesus was hungry, seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf. Now, this is a poor fig tree. Uh, this fig tree is, is just talked about a lot. And, and you read commentaries and different people have different opinions on this fig tree. And some people will say that certain fig trees, they have leaves early and, and they can get fruit. And other people will say that, that the fig tree was, you know, just abnormal or whatever. It wasn't supposed to have leaves yet. But, it, but it's a fig tree, okay? So here's a fig tree. Jesus sees it and it looks like it might have food on it. When he reached out, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Okay, so it's not the season for figs. Mark feels the need to tell us that. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. This is a weird little section of Scripture because Jesus looks at a fig tree and it doesn't have fruit on it and so he curses it. It's strange because the fig tree didn't really do anything wrong. I mean, God forgive me, but uh, it seems like the fig tree is just being a fig tree. Do we agree? 
You don't look like you agree. Maybe you would have cursed it too. And so it's just kind of weird because Jesus, and the word cursed is used later, sees this fig tree, it doesn't have fruit, and then he curses it. And this is what I picture, and I don't know why, but I picture Jesus going through a Christmas tree farm and cursing all the Christmas trees that aren't well-shapen. Like, curse you, fig tree. You should have been a better tree for me and my birthday. And that is what I picture here. Or I picture... Like if I opened a bag of chips, me personally, and there was no chips in them, I might be like, curse you bag of chips, may no one ever eat from you again, garbage can. Just like that. That would be me. But here's what's so strange about this is I'm me and Jesus is Jesus. And throughout the entire Bible, we don't really see Jesus have knee-jerk reactions to things. We see that in the life of Jesus, everything that he does is intentional and on purpose And here it just seems like I'm hungry. Now I'm angry because you don't have anything on you for me to eat, you stupid tree. And so curse you. Now here's the other interesting part about this. This is really one of two negative miracles that Jesus does in the entire Bible. In Matthew 8, uh, 28 through 34, you read the other story. And there... Jesus crosses over a sea and goes into a different region that he's normally not in called the Decapolis. And he encounters a man who has a bunch of demons inside of him. And Jesus looks at the man and the demons out of the man talk to Jesus and they say, Hey, don't torture us. It's not time for us to be tortured yet. Let us go into the pigs. And Jesus says, okay, and he lets the the demons go into the pigs. He sends the demons into the pigs. And then the pigs run down a hill, jump off a cliff, and all die in the water. It's pretty negative, right? But if you think about that passage of Scripture, the story of the pigs, the the real issue at hand in Matthew chapter 8 is not the death of the pigs. It's actually the healing of the man who had demons in him. And so in some ways, even that miracle is positive. If you like humans more than pigs, then you look at it as a good miracle overall, and I hope that you do. And so here, maybe, in our passage of Scripture, we see the only negative miracle of Jesus. We see the only time when Jesus uses his power to do something that on first glance we go, well, that's not good. We're Oregonians. We hug trees. We don't curse them. What is going on? And so here, here's the deal. This all makes sense when you know one thing. One very important thing. And here it is. The fig tree was a symbol for the religious establishment of Judaism. And it was also a symbol in the Old Testament for the fruitlessness of Israel and the punishment that God brought to Israel at certain times in their history. You see, the fig tree wasn't just a tree, the fig tree was a symbol of everything that was Israel at the time of Jesus, and even still some today. Let me read you a couple of verses. Hosea, Hosea 9.10 When I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. But when they came to Baal Peor, they consecrated themselves to that shameful idol and became as vile as the thing they loved. And so he references Israel when they were good as a fig tree with fruit. Micah 7, 1 and 2. What misery is mine. I am like the one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat. None of the early figs that I crave. The faithful have been swept from the land. Not one upright person remains. Everyone lies in wait to shed blood. They hunt each other with nets. Are you seeing the theme? 
It's also used for the punishment of Israel. Jeremiah 8.13 I will surely snatch them away, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine and no figs on the fig tree, and the leaf will wither, and what I have given them will pass away. Jeremiah 29.15-19 through 19, You may say the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon, but this is what the Lord says about the king who sits on David's throne and all the people who remain in this city. Your fellow citizens who did not go with you into exile. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will send the sword, famine, and plague against them, and I will make them like figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten. I will pursue them with the sword, famine, and plague, and will make them abhorrent to all the kingdoms of the earth, a curse and an object of horror, of scorn, and reproach among all the nations where I drive them, for they have not listened to my words." To symbolize the fruitlessness, the establishment of Israel, and the punishment God used throughout the Old Testament, the fig tree. And so I don't know if the disciples would have known in that kind of moment right there when Jesus curses this fig tree, if they would have put it all together. But if they would have, it would have been like, oh, I can't believe he did that. I heard it actually compared to burning the flag in my studies for this sermon. Jesus does in that moment is, is that profound and that bold. He took the symbol of everything that was their country, all of the, the fruit that they should have and the curses that God had brought upon them, and he just said, this is where you're at right now. There is no fruit in the religion of Israel. In fact, the religious leaders we know didn't like Jesus at all. They were very against Jesus, and he has conversations with them about how they look good on the outside, They look like they might have fruit, but yet when you looked at their lives, nothing good was taking place. In the next part of this passage, we see just a little picture of why the nation of Israel and the religious religious people and the religious entity didn't produce the fruit that God desired for them. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now here's the situation. The temple was broken up. In the very center of the temple was God's most active powerful presence in a place called the Holy of Holies that we sang about and we think in some ways is duplicated when we gather together at church. And as you went out from there in the temple court area, there was less and less or there was more and more access for people. And so one person once a year got to go into the Holy of Holies. You go out a step, men got to go in. You go out a step, Jewish women got to go in. And then you go out a step on the very outer edge and there was the court of Gentiles. This is non-Jewish people. And so here... Jesus is walking through the area where Gentiles, non-Jewish people, were allowed to go to pray and to praise God. And what he finds is a whole zoo. He finds people selling things, according to this passage. He finds people exchanging money, which was basically a currency exchange. And uh, the Jewish people were to pay the Old Testament tax that God had told them about for 
thousands of years. And so they wanted to use the closest money possible, the closest currency possible. And so people would set up shop in the temple courts, the area of the Gentiles, and they would exchange. You give me your dollar and I'll give you one of these and then you can pay in the way that was prescribed by God. And then it says that people are passing through the temple court. And it wasn't even allowed to walk through it, but picture it. The temple is in the very center of the city of Jerusalem. And if you need to get to the other side, there's this giant area. You either have to go all the way around or you can just walk right through. But it wasn't allowed and people were doing it anyway. And so Jesus comes here and what he finds is according to him a den of robbers, a house of robbers. But here's the honest truth. Nobody is stealing anything. I think when I've read this passage in the past, I'm picturing that people are ripping people off, that there's some kind of illegal activity going, that people are are doing things that would offend each other, but that's not what Jesus finds. He finds people conducting business. I'm sure everybody was on the same page. I need that shekel. I'll give you my dollar. You'll charge me a little more. I want to buy that, that cow from you, and so here you are. It makes it easy on my life. These people are not robbing people. They're robbing God of his prayers. Jesus says, my house, the temple, is supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations, including the Gentiles. But yet, you, through setting up shop in the area for the Gentiles, have taken away their ability to pray. I mean, picture like 100,000 people descending on the city of Wilsonville and then setting up shop with everything that they need to do and sell right in one parking lot and saying, hey, you guys, this is where you get to pray. It would be pretty difficult to do, right? I mean, you're praying and moo, cow, not good. You're praying and like, hey, buy one here, not good. And so what these people had done is not rob each other, but instead they were robbing people of their spot and their ability really to pray to the true God of the universe. And they were robbing God of the prayers that he so desires, so covets. Now, here's, here's the thing. It's so easy for me to go, you dirtbags, I would never have done that. But then I look at my life. I look at most Americans' lives. And, and I think maybe, if I could just say it, that we're robbing God of his prayers. You see, we are not that different than them. We say, well, I would love to get to that prayer today, God, but it's just not as convenient. You know, and so, God, if I could, it'd be great, but it's really not that convenient for me to do that today. God, I would love to spend time in prayer with you today, have a conversation with you, but you know what? There's things to sell. There's people to see. I got places to go. I have things that I need to get done. There's business to conduct, God. And if there wasn't business to conduct, then maybe I could get down on my knees and pray today, but there is. And here's what the Bible tells us, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You see, what the Bible tells us is that now that Jesus has died and risen again and sent his Holy Spirit back on earth, when people become Christians, then they are the temple. And what I think is happening in our country today is not that dissimilar to what was happening in first century Israel. We are robbing God of his place of prayer. 
by taking our lives and making them about everything else besides the spiritual. We have taken what God is meant to be a vessel of worship and prayer, of communion with Him, and we have said, God, if it's convenient, if it makes sense for me, then I'll get to you. But if not, then find somebody else to pray. And so the first thing that that we need to remember, if we're going to get back to the heart of prayer, is that we should not, we must not, we ought not, Say, God, I'll offer my life as a vessel of prayer if it's convenient, if it's easy. But instead we must say, God, you have, you have made this the place of prayer. You have made me your vessel, your instrument of prayer. You have made me a temple that is meant for prayer and I will no longer rob you of that. It's really easy to look back and say, how could you? How could you? How could you take away God's spot for worship? But I ask you to look inside of yourself. Say, how often do you, with your life, take away God's spot of prayer and worship? How many times do you go, I'm going to pray. I'm going to do it. I'm down. I'm on my knees. Oh, I got a text message. See what that's about. How many times do you go, I should just wake up early tomorrow and I'm going to say my prayers in the morning, but man, I want to watch this movie tonight and then you're too tired in the morning. How many times do you say, well, I, I wish I had time to pray, I just, but I don't have time. You have time. God's given you the time. You're just robbing him of that time. Story continues. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And I'll just remind you, because we went through a sermon series on the worthiness of Jesus and how amazing he is and, and how much he is truly worthy of your life and of telling somebody else about. And we talked about the amazingness of Jesus' teaching, so amazing that people fell beside themselves. That's what the word means. And here again we see a repetition of that. These people see Jesus clean out this temple, and it seems like they might get angry and stuff, but the majority of people are just blown away by him. Like, wow, you are different. Something is different about you. I want to be around you. I want to listen to you. I want to know you. Jesus taught like nobody had ever taught before. And the religious leaders, the fruitless ones, people driving the fruitlessness of the country, begin to look for a way to kill him. Probably because of that, we see that Jesus leaves the city, right? I mean, if people want to kill you, you should. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Now, it's really interesting to me here that Peter takes time to point out this miracle. Because Peter has seen like every miracle. I mean, Peter has seen Jesus stop a whole storm based on his words. And for me, like, that's more impressive. Maybe not you, but I can make a fig tree wither. Just pour some acid on it, and we're good to go. But a storm, like, that's unbelievable, right? I mean, I would love to go outside right now and say, be sunny. But that won't work. And here, Peter, for some reason, maybe because it's negative, looks at Jesus, and some commentaries do think that Peter is accusing Jesus. Like, hey, you killed a tree. 
You expect a response from Jesus, like to explain himself, to to offer a reason that he did this, to point out the fact that he was symbolizing the act that he had just done in the temple. But instead he uses it to talk about prayer. Have faith in God, verse 22, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself in the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Do you hear it? I want to read a commentary, a statement from the New American Commentary before I move on, because it's important for us to have this in mind. This statement is not meant to be universalized and applied without exception, but neither is it to be localized and confined to the original disciples or ignored as having no practical value. Faith is an indispensable element in answer to prayer. Now, here's the most interesting part about this. When you see these types of statements in the Bible, you look for context. What was said right before it? What's going to be said after it? What is Jesus really talking about here? But the context is a dead fig tree. Sure, it has symbolism, but the primary context here is not like some spiritual deal. It's Peter going, hey, the tree's dead. And Jesus responds with these words. Hey, if you believe, you can do it too. Now, here's a couple things that you need to be just real sure on before I just tell you how important belief is in prayer. First, God doesn't say yes to every prayer. I'm going to say it every single week through this whole series, I'm sure. God does not say yes to every prayer, nor should he say yes to every prayer. There's a movie called Bruce Almighty starring Jim Carrey. Maybe some of you have seen it. It's about Bruce a guy, regular old guy, who is given the ability by God to be God for a while. It sounds sacrilegious. It actually uh, is a fantastic movie and, and uh, had an impact on my life in a weird way. Uh, but there's one scene, probably the most impacting for me, where Bruce is getting all of the prayer requests from the whole world in his email inbox. And, and so he can't keep up. Uh, that's not true of God, so don't think that. But but Bruce, as a normal human being, cannot keep up. And so he clicks the button and, and hits reply all, and he just puts yes to everything. He says yes. Yes to all your prayers, whatever you want. And out of that, utter chaos comes. Everybody becomes rich, so there's no more money. Things start on fire. I'm not sure why, but it happens. And the the whole weather system gets messed up because for somebody to get rain on one side of the earth means that something else is going to happen on the other side of the earth. And so things just start to go absolutely horrible. And for me, it's always been the perfect illustration of why God should not, cannot, will not say yes to every single one of our prayers because it wouldn't be good for us. And it would not be good for our world. It's so easy to go, why won't God just say yes to everything that I, that I ask? Well, because he knows better than you. Honest truth. I mean, if you had the ability to be God, then you would just snap your fingers and get things done. But he knows better than you. Now, here's the other thing that's really important for us. The reference to a mountain going into the sea is surely hyperbolic. I mean, Jesus is not saying that we're going to be able to move a mountain into a sea, I don't think. He's using hyperbole, which means exaggeration for effect, okay? However, and here's the big however, here, here's where I wanted to get to. This is why I'm excited for this morning. What is the effect that Jesus is trying to make 
through that metaphor, through that hyperbole. When Jesus says, if you believe enough, then you can say to this mountain, move from here to the sea. What is he trying to get into our brains? Simple. If you really believe, then God is going to say yes to your prayers in magnificent and powerful ways. I'll read it again, verse 24. Therefore I tell you, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Talking about the cursing of a fig tree. It's easy in some faith traditions, including our own, to try to dismiss this. To go, let me tell you what Jesus is really talking about. Let me superimpose kind of the, the whole context of, well, he's talking about just Christian worship. And he, he's talking about this or that. It's really easy to go, well, I, I've seen it not happen before where I genuinely believe. This can't always be true. It's really easy to say, well, hey, that's for like the church down the road that, that you know, they're into that like believe it and it will happen kind of stuff. But over here on this side, we just say, Jesus, we love you, bless things. And, and we're done with our prayers. But this whole believing thing, it's all about God and, and that's it. No. Listen to the words of Jesus. Chuck your boxes. Step on your boxes. Do whatever you have to do to your box. And just for a second, let me read it one more time and listen to the words of Jesus thinking about the fact he's talking about cursing a fig tree. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. I don't think we do it. I think God is saying no to a lot of our prayers because we especially in our tradition, kind of our theological history, we think something like this. I believe God can answer my prayer, but he probably won't. You won't vocalize that, I know. I didn't even like vocalizing it just right there. But the truth is, that's the attitude that so many of us have about prayer. I'm supposed to pray, so I'll do it. God can't answer my prayer. I believe that with all my heart. Eh, But he's probably not going to. Probably not going to heal that guy. He's probably not going to give me that job. He can, but he's got his own thing going. Kind of hopeful, but probably not. In the words of Jesus here, they must, they must, if you listen to him and you believe him and you think he's a good guy, then they must change your thinking to a place where you go, I absolutely believe that God's going to say yes to this. He may not. But I absolutely believe God is going to say yes to this prayer that I'm praying. It genuinely changes everything. One of the ways that it changes everything is if you're anything like me, your prayers are always so vague. I'll just give you an example from our church because I think that the church is important. And and maybe hopefully you pray for our church and I pray for our church. But it goes like this. Hey, God, bless our church. You know, give us a good vision. You know, do good things. Amen. Amen. But I think when we start to go, I really want to believe that what I'm praying is going to happen. I have no basis for what blessed means. I mean, honestly, I only say that word in church. And so, like, what I, if God says yes to that, I, would, I don't know what that means. But, but it changes our prayers when we start to say things like this. God, add a couple new families to our church this Sunday. Absolutely believe you can do that. I believe you will do that. And so, God, please do that. Sounds a lot more like this. God, Give us $1.5 million so that we can build the thing that you want us to build. 
I absolutely believe that you can do that. I mean, if a mountain can go into a sea, then why not? And I think it is time for us to stop saying, God, help that person and say, God, give that person this exact thing that they need. I absolutely believe that you will do it. Because Jesus is saying when we start to pray like that, then things start to happen. I am telling you that if we are going to see the revival that I so desperately want in the world, it's not going to sound like, hey, God, start revival. It's going to sound like, hey, God, bring this person to salvation. Change the heart of this politician. Lead us in this way. Make this happen. Give us this amount of money. Do this for us, God. And we believe with all of our hearts that you will do it. I'm telling you, if we're going to see great things happen, it's not going to go, hey, God, I, be- I believe you can answer, but you probably won't, so uh, bless things, have a good day, amen. That is not going to cut it. And it is time for us, in this church, and in really American Christianity, to stop saying, well, the super spiritual guys, they'll believe that Jesus is going to do things. We'll be over here doing our own thing. And, and it's time to start thinking, God, I trust you to make this happen. I'll still trust you if you say no, but I believe that you're going to do this because you've shown me over and over and over again in Scripture that when I believe and I truly trust you to make things happen, then you do. Man. I just, I, I just, where's this been? I mean, why, why am I praying the way that I'm praying? Why do we pray the way that we pray? Why do we take prayer so unseriously? Why do we think that God's never going to answer, even if we won't vocalize that? When he says, hey, you could curse a fig tree too. You could do even better things. Like, see that mountain over there? And he was pointing, I'm sure. You could move it into the sea if you just believed. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer... Believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Stop thinking like, I really hope God's going to do this, and start saying in your mind, in your heart, in your soul, I believe God will do this, because I have asked him for it in prayer. That's the key. I mean, Jesus, in a very real and tangible way that I do not think is deniable, no matter what faith, theological background you come from, is saying, That the way God answers prayers is connected to the belief that we have in God answering those prayers. No, you might not like it. It might rub you wrong. But that is exactly exactly what Jesus is saying. There's no way around it. He's saying if you want to see God say yes to your prayers, then believe God is going to say yes to your prayers. Simple as that. And so here, here is what I want from you, from us. I just want you to pray expecting results. Sure, God may say no to you. Let's just get it out of the way. I'll say it over and over. God may say no to you. It might happen. But I believe that most of the time God is going to say yes if we truly have faith. That does not mean I want to guard against this. That God's up there ready to write you a check every time you ask for it. Because here's the deal, and maybe you don't want to think about this, maybe you don't want to, and maybe you just want all this stuff in life. But Jesus says, have faith. And, and here's what you have to know about faith in the New Testament. Faith is not like, hey God, do whatever you want for me. Faith is focused on God. And so you can't just go, hey, I want a whole bunch of stuff, and really and genuinely have faith in God. You must be focused on God if it's real faith. And so what I would offer is that it is impossible. 
Is it impossible just to pray and actually believe and have faith in a way that is all about us? God, I want a Lamborghini. That's not faith. That's you having no faith because you're acting like God doesn't exist when you pray it. I mean, if you're really spending your time on Lamborghinis and not the starving children across the world, then you're really not praying in faith at all. You're praying without faith. You're praying with purely selfish, eye-centered focus. And so this is not a blank check. This is God saying, I'll do whatever you believe I'll do if you pray in faith, remembering me focused on me. So I hope, I want our prayers to be changed. I really, I'll I'll tell you this, in July I'm going to stand in front of you at our our annual meeting and I'm going to say this. In my head, from the moment I started at this church, pictured kind of this this three years, the first three years. And, And the question that I get asked all the time is, hey, are you guys growing? And yes, we are, praise God. But I hate that question because as you know, as a church, we focused for two years on just being a church that honors God and does things the way that he has asked us to do things. And we have done a great job by the power of him at becoming more and more of that. This church is far more connected. It's just in a different place. I mean, we honor God in ways that we never honored God before. You love each other more. We care about each other more. I think we're praying about each other more. And I've seen our church do amazing things. And that was all its part of the plan, if you can plan on those kind of things. But in my head, it's always gone like this. We take two years and we become a real church. We become a church that honors God. And then the third year, we continue honoring God, but we do it in different ways. And we do it by changing the world around us. We begin to focus so intently on reaching people with salvation. We begin to focus on meeting the needs in our community so that God can be glorified and uplifted. And I think that's what our next year holds. And I think God has put this passage of Scripture in front of us right now because He wants it. We aren't a church. We will never be a church that the community needs if we don't have the power of God behind us. And I don't think we're going to have the power of God behind us in the way that we want. If we go, God, sure, you might help us out, but probably not. So what I'm asking is that you just, for us as a church, but for you as individuals, that you become a person who genuinely believes that God is going to say yes to your prayers. And you say, well, I would like to. I mean, that would be fun if I could, but I, I don't. I think God will respond like he does in this story. Matthew five fourteen through 24, Jesus comes down off of a mountain with just a few of his disciples, and this is what we read. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You guys heard a story about the love of a dad last week, and so put yourself in this man's shoes with a son, a little boy, who has demons inside of him that are throwing him down and into fires. It has to be absolutely horrible jesus says you unbelieving generation how long shall i stay with you how long shall i put up with you bring the boy to me so they brought the boy to him when the spirit saw jesus it immediately threw the boy into convulsion 
He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him to the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. I tell you that if you go home today and this week and for the rest of your life, and you say, Jesus, this thing needs to happen. And I so desperately want to believe that you're going to say yes to it. Please help my unbelief. I think God will respond to that every single time. And so for those of you that have that type of faith right now to say, yeah, I believe. I believe this is going to happen. Be prayer. And pray and say, I, we need this and I want that. And, and this would make your glory shine on this earth and, and Jesus do this. But for those of you that go, I don't know, I'm not there. I mean, I haven't seen enough prayers answered in my life. I'm not sure. Just get on your knees and ask God for those same things and end it by saying, Jesus, I want to believe so bad. Help my unbelief. Will you pray with me? Lord, it's time for us to change, and I pray that we would change. I pray that you'd change me. I don't want to pray vague prayers that I'll never know if they were answered, but I want to pray for things to happen uh, and I want to believe that, that you will make them happen, God. And I just pray that we're a congregation that demonstrates that. Too many people shy away from these words that you said, trying to rationalize, trying to think about all the negatives that might come, Lord. If we, if we start to think like this, are we going to become the prosperity gospel people? And, and I would just ask, Lord, that, that we would just chuck it and we would believe that we will receive and trust your words that we will lord i just for these for us and god this isn't being demonstrated enough when i look at how marriages are crumbling lord and and what if we just believed that we could just just ask lord that you would fix the marriage problem by your power in our country even within the church god and what if that happened? What if we just really just believed? God, I think that you would respond in ways that you're not currently responding. So I pray that we would rise up and we would be a church that does that, Lord. And Lord, we look at things like what happened in Boston this week, tragedies, God. And Lord, we pray things like keep us safe, Lord. But what if we just started to pray to you, God, and we would say, look... Everybody's arguing about what's causing these problems, but Jesus, we know that your power can fix it. We know that you can stop the violence and the evil that is just overwhelming our country at this point. We really believed you, God. I think you'd say yes. And so, Lord, this world needs us. This world needs us to pray and believe that we're going to see things happen. And God, I ask for forgiveness that I just kind of pray, <laughs> get it out of the way, check it off my list. Make myself feel good, Lord. And I, I pray for forgiveness for that, and I pray that we would not be a people that are that way. Pray, Lord, that we would believe you. And we believe your word. That, Lord, if we genuinely believe, we'll receive. And, and I pray that we would start to pray differently. And we would take it out of this kind of theoretical, vague place that we've placed it for 
so long. And God, we would no longer say, I need to pray for myself. You know, if I, I, it will help me grow. And we start to say, I need to pray because this world needs to change. And I believe that God responds to my prayers. Lord, you know, in my life you do that at times when I've been kind of over, I've been touched by this idea that, that I've seen greater things happen. And I pray that you bring me back to that place and you bring our church to that place. Lord, we pray. And I hope everybody will believe me right now. But we pray, God, that, that we will be a church that does baptisms every single week as part of our service because you are bringing people to salvation through our efforts. God, I, I pray that we would be a church that genuinely loves and cares about each other beyond anything that the world can know or experience. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that when we gather, your presence would be so strong that it would be absolutely undeniable that you are here with us. Lord, I pray we would be a church that is indispensable to the community around us because we do so much to show your love for people. And Lord, I pray that you would give us the resources to be that kind of church, whatever that means, God. We may not need money, but give us the resources and the ideas for that. Lord, we believe that you've called us to put a building on our church property. And God, I thank you that that property is no longer the focus of our church. God, and, and we thank you for the work that you've done out there in the last year or so and how it's been cleaned up. But Lord, we genuinely and so many people have believed through the years that you want to do something. We see miracle after miracle. But God, we ask that you would give us. Give us, Lord without even us putting forth any effort besides these prayers, you would give us the money to build the community center that you want us to build on that property. And we believe in your power. And I believe it's going to happen right now in this moment. And so I look forward to seeing how you do the things I just asked. And I pray that we would worship you, not thinking, hey, we did it, but thinking, look what our God did. Let us stop saying prayers and then making our greatest efforts thinking we better get it done because God won't. And let us start praying saying, God, you're going to do it. Let us come along for the ride. I ask these things in your name. Amen.